<laughs> Hi, my name's Caption. Boy, am I glad I'm in Al-Anon. <laughs> this is the mic. Yes, sir? I travel with my own speech coach. <laughs> well, Marlene, what do you know? <laughs> Thank you so much for inviting us. This is a wonderful place to visit. Um, we have a lot of friends in the area, and uh, some of you are better friends than others, but there's some that we're meeting and some that we've known a little bit here and there and run into, and it's just wonderful to keep running into the same people. And a few are special friends. I seem to attract the sick ones. <laughs> I want to tell a story. It just happened. I'm out there. I've gone to the ladies' room, and I'm trying to find my way back here, and I couldn't tell where I was. It's confusing out there. I'm standing in a hallway, and I have this friend who will go unnamed, but she's from Dayton. And she, I said, I can't, I don't know where I am. And she says, you're in Ohio. (laughs) Well, I knew better than that. I knew I was in Kentucky, you know. So, you know, that just tells you. But she's one of my favorite people, of course, you know. (laughs) She doesn't know where she is, but... uh, Oh, gosh, the sick ones are the best ones, you know. Now, yes, I am one. Uh, I'm sure that there are a few members of Alcoholics Anonymous here. They usually, you usually turn out after you've heard Cliff talk and you wonder, well, good grief, you know, who was in there all that time watching that behavior. (laughs) And I should say, because I'm in an area where you say this, that with the grace of God and strong sponsorship in the program of Elanon and lots of meetings, I haven't had to be obsessed with an alcoholic since St. Patrick's Day of 1970. I said I haven't had to be obsessed. That doesn't mean I haven't. (laughs) You know, we don't have to worry about slips in Al-Anon like you do, because we have them, but you can't smell them. And we celebrate anniversaries, Al-Anon anniversaries in our area in Southern California, which is in Oceanside down near San Diego. And uh, one of my best friends in the program and I had gone to Cliff's first AA birthday. And my God, you would have thought the Pope had arrived. (laughs) Of course, I don't blame the whole town of Oceanside for being grateful he was sober. (laughs) Believe me, they knew he needed it. But good grief, you know, the place just came apart and people were cheering and yelling and carrying on. And I'm sitting with my friend back there. And I turned to her and I said, you know, he's getting all this attention just because he didn't drink for a year. It tells you where he was right about then, right? (laughs) I didn't either. And nobody's doing this for me. And she, (laughs) I'm the one that held this all together. God, Liz, you're fun to have in the front row. <laughs> you can't miss, you know. <laughs> she laughs at everything. <laughs> oh, but I was tired when I got here because I had been running everything. But my, my friend said to me, well, why don't we celebrate our birthdays? And so we started doing that. And we began giving each other birthday cakes at a meeting when we'd had a, a year. We call them anniversaries here. We call them birthdays there. Then, of course, the loving AAs in our area began describing Al-Anon slips. <laughs> like, you know, well, you're getting, how do you know if you've really been? How do you deserve a cake? And so we had a little fun with that, as you can imagine. They were lovingly willing to help us explain our slips. <laughs> we figured if we just keep coming and stumbling along, that's good enough for us, because most of us had an awful time looking at our own role. I did. I certainly did. I'm... I'm struck with a little nostalgia here, as you are, because we miss Jack, too. And Jack has been uh, important to a lot of people all across the United States and and certainly down in our area. Cliff was program chairman of our big San Diego Spring Roundup, which is big. And we have it every Easter. And uh, he had invited Jack to speak, along with Tom, I, and and Gay, and Tom's wife, Fern, had come. And they they were there, but Cliff wasn't able to tend to their needs all the time because he was busy with some other things. And so I got the privilege of taking those four people to our 
Wild Animal Park, which is a branch of our San Diego Zoo, and if you haven't been there, it's pretty spectacular. That's all Jack wanted to do. When I called him, I said, what do you guys want to do? I'm at your disposal. I have the car, and I will be doing whatever you want. And they came early. So he says, I want to go to the Wild Animal Park, and I want to meet Joan Embry. Do you know who she is? She's the woman who's often been on TV showing animals on the late shows. And I said, well, I don't know if I can pull that one off, but I can get you to the Wild Animal Park. And I want to tell you, I tried everything I could to get him to meet Joan Embry, but she wasn't in town. And I don't know if I could have if she had been there, but I'll tell you, that's one of the most fun things I ever had because Jack became a, like a little kid. And for that whole day, while well, I just stayed with Gay mainly and kind of, he went loose. Um, <laughs> that's really what he did. And just watch that man have the best time, the best time. And uh, I'm so glad, I'm so glad I got a chance to spend that time with him. We didn't know then, of course, what was going to be happening not long afterwards. And uh, actually, it was Gay who was ill, and uh, as you know, and it was that um, those little wonderful memories. When I got in the car to leave, and I had to call Cliff to let him know what time we're going to be there on the phone, and I picked up the cell phone, and I said, "Well, I'm coming back, but I have to leave Jack here because they won't let him out at the Wild Animal Park." <laughs> they thought he was one of them, of course, and uh, and you know, so your your love, your person you love so much, who's gone from you, has. Um, taking a place in all of our hearts. And um, and that's true, I think, of a lot of us. And we lost, lost somebody dear a few months ago, Paul O. And um, and his wife, Max, is my closest friend, one of my two closest friends in Al-Anon. We walked together for 30 years, you know, and she's slipping in, uh, in very ill health. And, um, you know, we look at these people and we know they go. We lose them. My my good friend Carol T. One time she lives in Los Angeles, which is a hundred miles from me. But one time she had called for the. She's our local message carrier. If anything's going on, she lets you know. And I, she's not a gossip. She just tells you the news, and uh, as she sees it, you know. <laughs> sort of like as Bill sees it, you know. My my friend Sally C. says we have these two books. As Bill sees sees it, and Lois remembers. <laughs> <laughs> so wonderful, isn't it? She had called one, and, and she had, for the third time that week, to tell me about one of our dear ones who had died. And I said, God, Carol, I don't even want to answer the phone when you call anymore. She says, you know what you have to remember is we're so fortunate here that we have so many wonderful people in our lives that we never would have dreamed we would have. And by the big numbers, so many. And when we have that many, and we stick around a few years, we're going to lose a few. And we're just... It's because we're so fortunate. It's because we get to have these wonderful relationships and these wonderful people that we, we go through the grief of losing them. But, you know, we also, most, most of us, I think, believe that uh, that's okay because I can tell you I knew Paul pretty well. I saw him every Monday morning for sure when I picked up Max and in his underwear, by the way, for anybody who's got any illusions about Dr. Paul. Uh, <laughs> He was always running on his treadmill, and he'd open the door for me, and, and he was pretty used to me. You might guess that. And uh, I said, God, Paul, one of these days it's not going to be me at the door. You know, he didn't care. But, uh, but that that regularity of people in our lives, that dependability, when we lose them, it's hard. Uh, but their spirit lives on, and I feel Jack's spirit here, and I'm sure you know exactly what I'm talking about, because he has been a strong influence to everybody. I don't know what time I started here, Marlene, darling, because we started late. I think somebody talked longer than they were supposed to. It had to have been an alcoholic. <laughs> <laughs> it's fun to see Marlene and Dick. They are hostesses and, and host and hostess, and they are uh, old friends, and we've known them quite a while, too. And it's nice to feel safe with people. Um, that's not always the case, by the way. Sometimes we get picked up by complete strangers and get in a car that has four ball tires. And uh, somebody who says, I forget which hotel we're supposed to have this convention in. And <laughs> See, somebody has sent a newcomer to pick us up because they think it would be good for the newcomer. <laughs> <laughs> but we trust, don't we? We trust. We trust. <laughs> well, just because you heard my husband speak last night doesn't mean you got the story. <laughs> And by the way, you know, your theme is wonderful. And Rule 62, for heaven's sakes, how seriously can we take ourselves up here when half the audience is sitting there sucking on lollipops? <laughs> Takes away a little bit of the edge. Did you notice that last night, Cliff? You sit there with an old lollipop in their mouth. I feel like I'm teaching kindergarten class or something. It's a wonderful idea. 
by the way. And every, all of us that don't, hadn't thought of it before are going to steal it, the idea, and claim it as our own. <laughs> they won't know in California where we got it. <laughs> it's a wonderful idea. It's, there's something kind of loving about somebody giving you a lollipop when you walk into a meeting. And I don't know if some of you know what I'm talking about, but I know. A lot of thoughtfulness in there. A lot of sense of uh, wanting us to feel happy and enjoy ourselves. A lot of welcoming in that. And that's what goes on here. Well, I uh, I guess I should talk to you about my program. <laughs> I hope I do. Um, I don't think I have to describe to you as to what attracted me to this peculiar man I'm married to. <laughs> and I did meet him in college. By the way, a lot of what he says isn't true. It really isn't. Uh, and it used to it used to bother me. And until <laughs> my my sponsor is a is a writer, and she'd say. Patty, Cliff talks in metaphors, and he does, and they're wonderful. And when he talks about that eight minutes, which some of you heard, how he, he would get that eight minutes, I want to tell you that I like his eight minutes, too, so to speak. I'm sure it wasn't eight minutes, doesn't matter, it's a metaphor, but he, I liked that, too. And I kind of, in some ways, would have liked to keep him drinking, but I wanted to teach him how to stay in that eight minutes. Because I liked that. He was a whole lot easier to get along with. And our whole house was easier when he had his little moment in time. And all he really needed to do was listen to me so he would stay in his eight minutes. (laughs) And when we met and we got married in college and it was during the war, right after the war, actually. I'm not quite old enough to have been going during the war. Almost. I'm going to be 72, I think. I lose track, whatever it was. I was going to college right after the war ended in 1946. And we're mostly GIs there, and a few of us little girls. <laughs> and I'd been protected and lived a rather protected life in a small town in California called Los Gatos up near San Jose. And I went to San Jose State, and all these guys came out of the service and attended college on the GI Bill. And, of course, they were older, and they had been defending my life, and I'd been raised to be patriotic. and it was the first time I was really away from home and I didn't break the rules growing up but there were a few that looked like I might be able to break them by then and I had a wonderful time I mean it was wonderful it was just loads of fun Um, and he was one of those guys when I met him he was drunk I have to tell you that because you know you got to say what did you even see him a second time for because when he gets drunk you're pretty well aware that he's drunk you don't doubt it. The world doesn't doubt it. The place all of San Jose State knew. Uh, but he was a big man on campus, so to speak. He was a drama major. You might be surprised to hear that. <laughs> you just see the drama, which is loads of fun. And he was in all the plays, and he was particularly, of course, in the comedies. And he was very talented, and still is. And he, he was, um, his friends were in the drama department, and they're so nutty. And so much fun. And I was a psychology major. (laughs) Which isn't much different than being an alcoholic, actually. It's it's got its own set of problems. So I was, they loved me because I would just listen to them endlessly. All these drama majors are, of course, all self-obsessed. And and I I would listen to them endlessly trying to figure them out, which they loved, you know. And, of course, I felt needed and important, and I know now, didn't know then, I felt better then. And I needed to feel better then because I wasn't doing very well in college academically, which wasn't like me. I'd gotten excellent grades in high school, never was any work for me, but I was playing so much in college, having such a good time. I had to work. I didn't. Our family had no money, so I was working. There were no student loans then. And I just uh, didn't do too well in college, and I needed to get to feeling good about myself in some way. So, you know, that's one of the ways you can do it if you're like I am. Um, he wasn't drunk the second time I met him, which was accidental on campus. I, got, I just took out something. I wrote, I wrote something down. I never do this. The reason I don't do it is because I never remember what I wrote it down, what I wrote. I was like, why did I say that? Or why did I write that down? Oh, yeah. Okay. I just jack. That was all I wrote. <laughs> I didn't want to forget him. Um, he was not drunk and he was being very funny. He was having a fist fight with a bee on campus. He had to be there. And uh that's funny. And oh and I kinda liked that and I thought this guy's a lot of fun. And then we started seeing each other and then I fell in love with him when I realized that he could sing like Donald Duck. 
What better reason is there to marry someone? It's funny. I'll tell you, it's funny. We had a lot of fun. And uh, I began those things we began, which was controlling. Because the drinking was a problem. He knew it was, too. Um, it wasn't as if he pretended like he didn't get too drunk now and then. There were times where he really didn't want to have too much to drink. He was concerned himself about we were, might be going somewhere where he didn't want to act up too badly. And he would say to me, I want you to help me keep from drinking too much tonight. M- <laughs> music to a pre-Alanon Zoo, huh? <laughs> And he says, because you can tell. I says, yeah, I can tell. I can tell. So uh, he said, when you realize that I probably should stop, I want you to come up to me and whisper in my ear and simply say, honey, it's time to stop now. And, of course, I could do that. And uh, I watched him. Of course, you know what fun I had at the party. I had to watch him. And I would do exactly what he asked me to do, and he would swear at me. (laughs) And I would be so hurt. And uh, the next morning when I would talk about it with him, he'd claim to have forgotten. And, uh, of course, I doubted that. I began trying to control his anger. He was the angriest person I'd ever seen. I didn't know anything about that kind of anger. I was raised in a household where, well, it isn't nobody was ever angry. I'm sure they were about some things. We didn't have a lot to be angry about in our household, but we also, I was taught that you don't go around expressing anger that way. Uh, some of the ways I was raised weren't all that great, looking back, but it was, it was well-meaning on my parents' part. And they gave me good values, and they loved me, and I knew it. I never question that I was loved uh, by my mother and my father and my grandmother who usually lived with us not so sure about my older sister but that's all right you know I had the rest of them in fact the whole town of Los Gatos I believe loved me and I think they did because in a small town where everybody knew everybody it was that way I had a lot of security and a lot of reason to feel that I was safe in the world and I'd never seen that kind of anger and it wasn't only that he got angry and crazy when he drank and he did do some of that uh, he also was a lot of fun when he drank, sometimes. We never know, do we? But he was angry the other times. And being a psychology major, I was going to help him with that. He told me why he was so angry sometimes. He said he'd been raised in this terribly difficult household, and and um, his mother had been a drunk, and his father probably was too, and, and there was a lot of fighting, and, and, uh, and it had left him with this anger. And I used to think, well, if he knows why, why doesn't he stop it? He could explain it all to me. But what he needed, he said, was a loving woman to simply make life smoother for him. It's his words. He said, I won't get so anxious and nervous if you'll just keep it smoothed out around me. So that's what I did. I kept it smoothed out around him, which is it's a full-time job. And uh, today I, I have, hopefully, a lot of compassion and sympathy for somebody, anybody, who has to walk around with that kind of anger. It's got to be terrible. Um, and I also learned today from you that I'm not responsible for fixing his anger. He is. But I tell you, when I came in Alan and I began hearing other people talk about how scared they got around the anger, I was really aware of how many of us, it seems to me, adjust our whole life to keep peace, to keep the anger from happening. Um, and that's exhausting. And it doesn't work anyway. But we think it does. At least I did. Because I needed to control it. And so I did all I could to make life smooth. Now, that isn't easy when you have five children, which we did. That happened in a little bit of a strange way. Uh, Not that we don't all start children in the same way, as far as I know. (laughs) Maybe sometimes that was strange, too, now that I think of it. I thought about that. And... uh, because Cliff, I had married a member of the CIA. That's a Catholic Irish alcoholic. You've probably heard that many times. And I had been raised in a, in a home where the Masonic Lodge was my father's religion, if you will. So there was a little bit of, of trouble for those of you who are old enough to know that. There was a real conflict between the Masonic Lodge and the Catholic Church. He wasn't going to church, and he didn't practice his religion when I married him. But sometime later, a short time later, actually, he decided he wanted to look into his religion again. And I know today, from hearing lots of AA speakers and reading the AA literature, as well as Eleanor, that it, alcoholics are looking for a spiritual solution all along. And um, so he went back to his church. 
Now, I didn't mind it at the time because it seemed to settle him down a little, and, and I was getting pretty nervous about all this drinking. So I checked it out and decided I wanted to keep him there, and so I became Catholic, too. Now, that's why I became Catholic, to keep him there. And it was good for me, though, because I needed that religious structure. I hadn't had that in my life, really, and it was uh, it was good for me in many ways, and I recognized that. I think I knew it then. Uh, but that's about all I did with it. I mean, I was, and I saw that the, well, what it, what it gave us is five kids, you know, because I followed the rules, and, uh. <laughs> so I had all this, these people to manage, and, uh, I had to get him his teaching credential. I wanted you to pay real close attention, you can hear the martyr in me. I'm a member of the Varsity Martyr Club. Uh, I got a big letter M. Somebody lovingly gave me that. And uh, I began making sacrifices for him. And I want to tell you, when he got into AA and was supposed to make amends, he has never thanked me for any of that stuff. (laughs) I wonder why, you know. And that that's became my way of life. And uh, he had gotten his bachelor's degree and uh, in drama, and then um, he wasn't getting any work. Well, he went ahead and got his teacher credential because I worked his way through. I have to say that that way because that's how I felt about it at the time. I nudged him back into school because I really, and he was willing to do that because, for one thing, I kept him out of the Korean War, and I didn't blame him for that. He'd been in one war already. And... But I was really taken on this role of the great sacrificer. And, of course, it didn't hurt us any that he got a teaching credential. He was able to get some work, and it was fine. But for six years, he spent we spent six years in Los Angeles while he attempted to be an actor, and it just didn't work out. But he had his teaching credential and eventually began doing that. I, meanwhile, had these little people running around. And they were a lot of work, a lot more work than I thought. And he was a lot of work. And we were always running out of money. And and uh, teachers don't get paid in the summer. We didn't anyway. And he needed his summers off because he's sensitive. <laughs> he worked. He worked some of those summers. But you know, it was it was uh, hard financially, real hard. So I began doing what I'd done all my life. I'd always worked at something. From the time I was a little kid, I was raised with part of the depression. I didn't think twice about it. I was picking prunes in Santa Clara Valley when I was eight years old, you know. Didn't think twice about it. It's what you did. You just got a chance to work, you worked. So I didn't think twice about it, and I was out earning money every corner of the world I could while herding these children around. And um, and I began giving piano lessons at home. I, I learned how to play the piano. I hadn't the foggiest notion how to teach, but I faked it. And whatever, you know. And uh, one of the reasons I decided to start doing that is because I could stay home and keep an eye on him and everybody else. And believe me, there were always a lot of people in our house. That's one of those things that happens in Santa Barbara. We're very social people. We used to be. We don't have people in our house much now. But for one thing, when you have five kids, you've got a whole lot of other kids around because they kind of come there. And he, he often talks about that. He'll talk about how, you know, the... The kids from the craziest households would come to our house, and we look back and we think, God, they were really sick over there if they were comfortable in our house, because it was crazy. <laughs> but we had a lot of fun, and we did a lot of things with with the singing and having parties. And and uh, so there were always more kids there than we owned, <laughs> always more. Um, he would bring home friends from school, after school, and uh, other teachers, of course, and some of they like to drink, some of them. And I'd be teaching piano in my living room. My mother had come to live with us. My mother was an alcoholic. I was raised by an alcoholic woman. Somehow, and I realize today more, her drinking was not really troublesome for me until I got into high school, and I recall many difficult scenes. But I so, so much a part of my life with my mother had to do with her caring about me and her loving attitude and she was so funny so much fun my mother's one of the funniest people i've ever known and cliff agrees with that they got along quite well you might imagine (laughs) she thought i made a wonderful choice and of course they were drinking buddies i know today one of the reasons i wasn't as affected by my mother's drinking as many people are is because she was periodic and i learned that here she only drank 
occasionally. She would go six months without a drink, very comfortably, just having a ball with life, chasing fire trucks. Literally, that's what we did. You left dinner and went and followed the fire truck. Uh, that's mom's kind of fun. Lots of fun. And uh, we'll worry about dinner later. And we did, you know. Uh, but then she, then I would come home from school and I would find her just kind of sitting in her chair all slumped over and being like a drunk lady is. She was only four foot ten and she wasn't very big, but she, she was not mean, but she would be drunk. And I never knew when that would happen. And in high school that began. Uh, I became aware of that, and I was careful when I'd bring people home. And I'd know that that would be a few weeks worth. She would do that. She sucked on, that's my dad called it, through a straw, orange juice, and vodka. And it looked like she was drinking orange juice, and she thought she was fooling us, you know. And I learned at, during that time from my father how to search for bottles and how to try to keep her from drinking and how to scold her when she was drinking and how to try to point out to her the error of her ways. And I also learned, because of those long spells where it wasn't a problem, the denial of the problem. Oh, well, it's gone now. It won't be back. Sometimes I like to compare that kind of alcoholism to slot machines. I like the slot machines, too. You know, they pay off just often enough. (laughs) Huh, Al-Anons. They keep us in there just pulling that lever. You don't pull levers anymore. You just poke buttons. But just that. This time it's going to be okay. And, of course, sometimes it is. Just enough. I sit at the slot machine sometimes when we go up to talk at something like Vegas or Reno. And I'll be, I like the quarter slot machines. You know, I don't spend a lot of money, but I like them. And I'll be sitting at one of these slot machines, and it's not paying off very well. And I'll notice the one next to me really is. And the guy next to me, and it's, you know, he's doing okay. And then he finally takes his money and goes, and I think, maybe I should move over to that slot machine. And then I think, no, I've got too much invested in this one. (laughs) (laughs) And I'll be damned if I'm going to move over and let somebody else hit the jackpot, you know, (laughs) on my machine. Which is kind of like it was, you know, because I, I wasn't going to abandon that marriage and that guy because inside I knew there was this good person in there. And I wasn't going to abandon it and let somebody else get the jackpot. Uh, I didn't understand about Alcoholics Anonymous. We we didn't call my mother an alcoholic. Well, we might have on occasion said, maybe she's alcoholic. You have to whisper it back then. (laughs) But she came to live with us after my dad died. Um, Guess who asked her to do that? You know, Cliffy loved her. And they had parties. Oh, she was in Hog Heaven. She was in a house full of people who adored her. We all loved Grandma. The whole neighborhood loved Grandma. We raised the kids in our cul-de-sac, so there were several sets of families that all grew up together. Very nice way to raise kids. They all loved Grandma. She was the favorite of everybody, and she couldn't have had a better life uh, besides all the parties, which is what she loved. And um, so here I am giving piano lessons, and I guess I was good enough because they kept coming. And I, I love to say this because it just represents my mind of, my mindset when I came into Al-Anon. When I got here, I was giving 37 piano lessons a week. That's a lot. And you're supposed to go, oh. <laughs> well, that's the way I felt about it. Oh. All the sacrifices I made. <laughs> And I had these kids that were growing up. And Cliff would come home every day after school. And in the kitchen, our house, kind of the house we lived in then had kind of three parts. It was a living room where I was trying to carry on a dignified piano studio, which isn't easy when you're married to somebody like I was married to. <laughs> and in the middle of the house was our kitchen and dining room area, which was kind of separated. And that's where he would come with his teacher buddies, and my mother would Join them, of course, while they made margaritas. Used three blenders at a time. <laughs> and, you know, when they have a few things to drink, they get them on there wrong. You ever hear that sound? And uh, and I'm trying to keep a quiet, dignified piano studio. Meanwhile, keeping track, because I had to know what was going on in that kitchen. And uh, and a lot was going on. My mom used to take little walks. My dad had died, and she, she took little walks around the block. She was on a walker, because she'd broken her hip somehow. Didn't remember how that happened, but she'd broken her hip. She couldn't remember 
what happened. And it um, didn't hurt, she said. Uh, one reason it didn't hurt, she also had discovered pain pills. So she was still a periodic alcoholic, but she was a daily pill head. And a daily pill head, it doesn't hurt much, you know. And uh, and Cliff, who was really a daily alcoholic by this time, had also discovered pills because he has a cousin who was a doctor. And that doctor probably, that doctor cousin probably also had a little drinky poo problem. And he helped him out with some pills now and then, and then he began that, that stuff. So he was a daily alcoholic and a periodic pill head. He'd go on pill binges. And uh, that was worse to me than the alcoholism, by the way, for any of you Al-Anons who experienced that. And I know we're here to talk about alcoholism. That's a part of it. And uh, that was harder for me because you can't even smell it, you know. It's very crazy-making. But uh, can't control it as well either. Can't find little pills as easy as you can find bottles of things. And she'd walk around the block and bring home little men. Nice little men. Nice people. Everybody loved Mom. And she, Pauline was her name, and she would bring home cute little old men who were attracted to her because she's always walking around the block, you know. they just kind of like the Pied Piper. They'd come following her home. And, of course, they'd all be out there in the kitchen drinking and partying and making margaritas. And I'm listening in to see how many they've made now because I can tell by the sound of the blenders while I'm keeping track here of this student and how whether they're playing something correctly or not. And uh, then there were these kids who were growing up weird. Um, I love my kids. You know, of all the things that go wrong in our lives and of all the things that, that are difficult, those kids are the greatest. They're my good friends, and they, we just love being together. We spend a lot of time together, I do, with the kids, and, and talk on the phone a lot, and not, not too much, but just, you know, they're just great. Um, and they were a lot of fun, too, and they're loving children. They've always been good to me, with a couple of moments in time where they their disease caught up with them. But um, they were they were nice kids to have around, and I liked their friends. But they all were weird, and I began noticing that some of them smelled musty. <laughs> Liz knows what I mean. These pot smokers know, don't you? I didn't know anything about that. I didn't know. I just thought, wait, they're not washing their hair? Or what's going on? So I. Then I'd find my little hair clips. Those little hair clips would be burned. <laughs> Didn't have a clue. But I did know they were real easy to get along with. <laughs> they took up meditation, they and their friends. When I say they, three of our kids were teenagers when we got here. And they had friends. And so there were always six to seven to ten teenagers in our house and they looked alike they all looked alike they had long hair parted in the middle they wore wire rim glasses they didn't need glasses but they wore them anyway some of them wore headbands southern california in the 60s they had of course no shoes they don't wear shoes and big holes in their jeans many of them had peace medals hanging around their necks peace medals and they meditated they go oh oh and, you know, when they'd all do that at once on a couch, you know, and these peace smells would sway back and forth. You know, it kind of takes you with it. You just kind of, well. <laughs> And I have to tell you, the stuff that was going on then with the kids, I was not about to let Cliff know. Because I didn't want to add to my problems by having to deal with his reaction to that. And I had learned that long ago. And when I got into Al-Anon and was doing my own step work, and I felt like that was something, a real character defect that I had kept. I wasn't honest with him about that, the children's use of things. And my sponsor said to me, are you crazy? You better not tell him. He was nuts. You don't want to add to it. So, you know, it really freed me. I realized that what does being honest mean exactly here? You know, being stupid? You know, why, why do that? You know, there wasn't any point in it. And it was right. And I look back on it now and I realize that coming through alcoholism, we do a lot of things that are really not the right thing to do at all. But that was, that was the right thing to do because that wasn't going to help anything. And by this time, his alcoholism had progressed and he was in the throes of that and he was already so overwhelmed trying to keep his life going while drinking that it was probably too much for him. But meanwhile, these things were happening. And then uh, he told you about our son, David, who took up a little business in high school. 
<laughs> and he also told you that that particular boy is going to have a year's sobriety in October. Um, he had been in, he's been in and out of AA a lot. He's the oldest boy, not the oldest child. Very, very, very successful. When he was getting his master's degree up at Davis, which is a, you know, a university in California, he, um, I went up to spend some time with him because he'd asked me to, and he was coming into finals, and he drinks, he was drinking a lot of beer those days, and I said, David, how do you, because he was on the dean's list, he got perfect grades all the way through. I said, how do you do that? How do you take a, exam and pass them like that when you drink so much. And he says, well, I just quit about a week before. Jeez, you know, how are you going to get somebody like that to see their problem? <laughs> and uh, and he quit pot. He just wouldn't do all that for about the week. Of final. You just It boggles my mind at what you alcoholics can accomplish. Gosh, it's just amazing. I mean, I'm, I'm lost on a half a glass of wine, you know? <laughs> God, you know, I used to be jealous of that, by the way. It seemed like, it sounded like a lot of fun, just a nice going somewhere in your head. But he had started his little business. That son, by the way, besides getting his both degrees in agriculture, <laughs> give you a little pause to think that one over, that you didn't know you could do that, did you? He'd learned a whole lot about agriculture long before he got into college. And... uh and then he spent two years in the Peace Corps in Colombia. <laughs> That's when they had the Peace Corps there. They don't have it there anymore. But <laughs> you know, you just shake your head and say, "And we think God doesn't have a sense of humor." I mean, that's pretty funny. He um, he's been in and out of this program, and he's um, he ha- he quit the pot smoking because I began drug testing at work, and so he, then his drinking increased, which won't astonish anybody in these rooms. <laughs> and, of course, he got in more and more trouble with the drink. And there were several times they lived in Hawaii for years because he was uh, developing a coffee crop over there. It really, it was, because I went and looked. And uh, <laughs> I know what to look for. I learned that. It really was coffee. And... Uh, <laughs> And there were several times when I would arrive over there, because we have a granddaughter there, and I like to go see her now and then, of course. And he would be coming off a binge. He's a binge drinker, just like my mother. And he could go quite a while without drinking. And then, boy, look out. And uh, I got the the painful pleasure of being getting off a plane several times and having to meet me and looking at him and realize, my God, and sitting with him to see if he's going to go through DTs. Um, it's tough to do with your kids. It's tough to do. I didn't have to do any of that with Cliff. He didn't drink that way. He never went through DTs. And in our case, he didn't get arrested. Not since I knew him. He apparently did that before I met him. Didn't have wrecked cars. Those things didn't happen to me directly. They happened to him all those years ago. So I didn't have to experience that. And he didn't ever go through DTs. He went through the shakes, you know, and he had some bad morning after, but he never got that bad. And David was. And it was very scary the last time he did that. Well, the time before that, he, he was in Mexico City. He travels all over the world in his work. And, of course, a five-star hotel. You know, you can die there, too. And his wife called us from Hawaii and said that the hotel doctor was giving him sleeping pills and he was drinking them. So two of our kids speak Spanish, got on an airplane, went down there and hauled him out of Mexico, not because we have any... Uh, illusion about that saving somebody's life who wants to drink, but because we just didn't feel we could let him die in a Mexican hotel. And you know, we make these decisions, don't we? Sometimes, as long as we do it realistically, knowing what we're doing, and we did, we knew. We decided together to spend the money and get get him out of that spot, and we did. Uh, he had to drink a little more after that. He was almost gone then, and... Um, uh, then he went through another bad binge, and they found him with a .37 with Librium on board. And how he's alive is, we don't know these things, do we? They had moved by this time to the Columbia River where they live now, and and he's alive. He chose October 1st as his date, he told me just the other day, because he needed to wait until he knew that Librium was out of his system. Now, there's a certain honesty about that and there's a sound to that that I recognized as a person who wants to be clean and sober 
in a way that's different. No pretending here, no games being played. He seems to be doing well, and we're happy for him. You know, when we have kids who go through these things, and we, um, to me, it's a constant uh, idea of where do we belong? Where do we belong as parents in their life? And when they're younger, it's really a problem. Because, you know, when, when our daughter went through what she had to do through with her drinking, she was 14 when we got here. And she she talks now, and she's the one that was sober 11 years and went out and drank again. She started back on pills. That's how she got into booze, because she had a lot of back trouble and began taking medication, decided she could didn't need to share everything with her sponsor about that. You know, all the details weren't necessary. And one thing led to another, and she drank again. She's sober now for a while, and I imagine expects to stay sober, but... The thing about that, and she, when she was sober during that long period of time, she talked often from the podium. She gave a very good AA talk, and it doesn't change the fact, the value of that, the fact that she went back out, because she was very honest. And she talks about how when she got married young, of course, she had to do everything young. And um, she got pregnant, and how she couldn't keep her body clean and sober during the pregnancy, and how little Sarah, which was our first granddaughter, was born, and she only lived six weeks. Because Sarah had damage because of her mama's use. And then she was pregnant again with another marriage. She does that. (laughs) Married and pregnant and married and pregnant and so on. And that little guy was born early and had a lot of health problems. Because she still wasn't able to keep her body clean for him. And, um, And I, one of the hardest things I've ever been through was sitting in the hospital with that little guy up through his first four years, really, while he he couldn't breathe and he was going through the things that his body was going through. And looking at my daughter, who still wasn't sober, sitting with him, knowing, she talks about this, knowing that she had contributed to that little guy's pain and his problems. And watching her and knowing I couldn't take away her pain. Because you taught me here that I have to allow other people to feel their own pain. That's the hardest thing just about I've gone through. Um, I could be their course for that little guy. But I want to tell you, for those of you who might be kind of new in this program, and it doesn't matter if you're A or L and on, when I would come out of that hospital room tired and, of course, just feeling the feelings we have about something like that, there would be Al Anon members sitting out there. Some AA members, too, by the way, because by this time I'd make good friends with quite a few of you. Just kind of sitting there. I'd say, what are you doing here, thinking they had somebody else in the hospital? They'd say, well, we knew you were there. We just thought we'd come over and sit here and read. It's just as easy to do it here. You know, all the things we do for each other. Just kind of quietly be there. And you were there. And um, if I ever questioned that I was in a place that was full of support and love and safety, I never questioned it again after that. That's been 18 years, and that little guy just graduated from high school. Hmm? We think he may join us one of these days. <laughs> <laughs> he just just barely graduated, you know. And our three teenage grandkids all got busted at once, the cousins. And we thought, <laughs> a while back, we thought it was nice they all get along so well, wasn't it? <laughs> But I was tired when when Cliff finally got back to AA again. I wasn't all that thrilled with who he chose. He went over to Bill Blake's house who lived around the corner. Now, Bill was not a man that I really thought he ought to pick. Um, he'd been Cliff had been in and out of AA, AA, and he was worse when he was not drinking. I put it in quotes because he also discovered diet pills. And he didn't drink for a while, but my God, he was crazy on those diet pills. Jeez. You know, and he, you know, he talks about the shape he was in. Well, sure. You know, he was helping himself a little there. And, uh, that's just nuts. And so, you know, I wasn't all that impressed with this AA thing that he popped in and out of, believe me. Plus, I didn't think a, a person with a professional, in a professional position should be wandering off to a place like AA. <laughs> Such a snob. And, um, he went to Bill Blake, who lived around the corner. I wasn't all that thrilled, as he told you Bill was a uh, wino, an Oceanside wino. 
He had a picture of himself that he was proud of. He owned a place called the Oceanside Electric Company. And he had a picture of himself on the wall that the planning commission had taken when Bill was still drinking because they were taking a picture of downtown Oceanside to represent the need for redevelopment. And it was on the front page of our little paper with Bill. <laughs> and he had his back to the camera, leaning against the parking meter, probably relieving himself based on the posture in the... <laughs> This was, he was, this is his claim to fame. So he was proud of that, and he had that on his wall. Now that's the kind of man Cliff tied himself up with here in this Alcoholics Anonymous thing. And Bill would come flying through my house, uninvited, didn't knock on the door, didn't ring a doorbell, didn't phone first, just walked in, scared the whoopee out of me. I'd be doing something, and there he'd be. And he'd be telling me to go to Al-Anon. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah, look at these messy people. Who? What do I, you know... And then I would remind him that I'd been a psychology major. Thank you very much. And I didn't need that. And um, after a couple of months, Cliff came in in January 1970. And uh, my birthday is St. Patrick's Day, of course. And after a couple of months of this, well, he brought me literature and I gave it to my next door neighbor who really needed it. And uh, <laughs> don't we do that? And who still needs it, actually? She's never found help. Um, he came in and he sat me down and he said, Pat, I checked out the Al-Anon in Oceanside, and they could really use your help. (laughs) Two months later, he had me figured out. Now, I'd been riding around to meetings with him, and because they took me everywhere. They took me along with them. Cliff was not living at home, which was a real relief. But I was riding because Bill and his wife, Margie, who was an AA member, would invite me to go to these things, and I'd go hear speakers, and they were supposed to be inspirational speakers. The first speaker I heard was a man named Chuck C. Everybody raved about him. They said, oh, he's so spiritual. Well, here's what I heard. This man, he's big, and he's handsome, and he's everybody's kind of like bowing to him, it seemed to me. And then he would say something grand, and then he would go, <laughs> Ever heard his tapes? It's terrible. And uh, and I would just sit there saying, my God, how can anybody, I'm supposed to get excited about this guy? He goes, <laughs> see where I was? And the next speaker I heard was a guy named Clancy. <laughs> well, he wasn't a speaker when I met him, actually. We went on Saturdays, we went up to Clancy's backyard because Bill was sponsored by Clancy. That's a hundred miles away. So we went up there and I went because I had to keep track of all this stuff, you see. And we go into Clancy's backyard, which in, in 1970, a lot of people, they still do, but they gathered in his backyard and, and played volleyball and across the street they played baseball and all these drunks and their family members gathered together on Saturdays. And, um, these people were all competing with, for who got to clean up the dog poop. <laughs> Big deal. You know, this is what they were their goals were. <laughs> and I sat in that backyard and I watched these people. And I thought, my God. And then he took me over to Clancy. And Clancy's the one who said to me, did you find her in a gutter waiting for an alcoholic to come along and abuse her? Which is something Cliff said, you know, the other night. And it was Clancy that I first heard that from. That's that's the way I met that man. And I, uh, <laughs> think. but I liked Charlotte, his wife, because she had a lot of animals and she loves animals. And she was... She had an attitude of of gratitude in the midst of all these crazy alcoholics all over her property. And, you know, and those, so there was a little balancing going on in there. And um, and then when Bill came and told me that Elna needed my help, I went to a meeting that night. <laughs> now, that's another little piece of work for God. For one thing, it's St. Patrick's Day when, when you're married to an Irishman. That's pretty funny to go to a Al-Anon meeting on St. Patrick's Day because that St. Patrick's Day was different than any other had ever been, I'll tell you, in our house. But I couldn't be grateful for that. I couldn't be grateful for the fact that this wasn't a day where every, all the drunks in town were at our house and I was supposed to be a good sport. How many Al-Anons are familiar with that? And um, I couldn't be grateful for that. I could just say, well, big deal. What about all those 20 years? You know, that's where my head had to go. And I came to you... Um, as some of our literature, which you don't happen to read here, but we read it at every meeting in Southern California, it's called Understanding Ourselves. And among other things, and you AAs in the room, you have a little weapon here if you want it. it we call ourselves arrogant, smug, and self-righteous and dominating. <laughs> it's right in that literature. It's called Understanding Ourselves. I've just blown it for you, Al-Anons, that are, have a spouse who doesn't know that about our literature. It's a wonderful piece of literature. Describes that, me. Described me. And uh, 
It wasn't written when I came in, but that's always when I hear it, and I hear it at every meeting in California that I go to. I'm reminded of who I was when I came in here. And and the thing is that Al-Anon's so clever, because I came in to help you, because Bill thought you needed my help, and you and he was right. You were badly organized. <laughs> there was only one and a half meetings of Al-Anon in our town, and the half a meeting, I call it that, because you never knew if it was going to be there or not. You know, you could go, and maybe somebody would show up, maybe they didn't. And the other meeting was always there. And there was no organization, and you even were proud of it. You read it in your traditions. It says, we are not organized. I'm going, jeez, you know, what kind of people are these? Well, they do need my help. Well, there was a wonderful woman named Millie there who recognized my pers- my style right away. And she claimed she couldn't drive. Uh, I think she could, but she would always have to have a ride. And she was involved in al service, and she one time asked me to please drive her to San Diego, 30 miles away, because uh, the San Diego intergroup was being put together in 1970. And could I just come with her? She was supposed to write bylaws, and she was on the board. So I did that. That was a day that I don't forget, because I don't think we know when our lessons are going to come to us in these meetings. This is my opinion, which is why I go to meetings a lot, because I never know what message I'm supposed to get. And that day, those Al-Anon people were arguing with each other. Can you imagine that, trying to put a service board together? They weren't getting along. (laughs) Pretty typical of us when we get into service. We all change personalities, I think. But they were really arguing and fighting, and it was nasty. And I'm just watching, of course. I just drove Millie there. I'd been going a few months to Al-Anon. And they, the, one of the women stopped everybody and said, "We're wait a minute here. We're not putting principles above personalities. I want to tell you, I'd heard that read time and again at meetings. And I thought, that's a nice theory. But I watched those people stop their arguing. And it was angry stuff. Be quiet and say the serenity prayer and start again. And I remember that. I remember feeling very still inside. I remember having a moment when I wasn't figuring out what they ought to do next. You know, I wasn't figuring out how to help them. I was really touched by that. And I really felt the power of that tradition. I saw it at work. And I felt very quiet. When I came home that day, that 14-year-old daughter who was beginning her alcoholism story then, we weren't quite aware of that yet, but she was. Now we know that. And she wanted to go to a beach party with the 21-year-olds. That's what she liked to do, of course, because they could get booze. And I was saying no to her. And she yelled at me, and she said, I hate you. And I'd never had a child say that to me. And I said to her, it's more important for me to like myself than it is for you to like me. And I want to tell you, I knew where that came from. I knew I had put principles above personalities. I had somehow been able to take what I'd seen down there at that meeting and bring it home and recognize a place in myself that had tried everything to make up to that child for the tough household she'd lived in by giving in to her too much, by not giving her any structure, by allowing her to talk to me that way. And I changed. And I just felt it. I felt it. It doesn't mean I wasn't scared, by the way. It just means I could feel the power of that wonderful tradition at work in me. She later says, boy, I knew things were going to be different. She calls it, she says, mom went into neutral. (laughs) (laughs) And I guess it is a kind of neutral. uh, Going, you know, I had to reverse my path. And I have to, guess you go through neutral when you go from full on forward to reverse. But, uh, Those are the moments, and I've had so many of those. Those are the moments in this program that keep happening to me in one form or another. And I don't know when. God knows I didn't go down there with the motive of learning how to put principles above personality. It never crossed my mind. I went down there because I didn't want Millie yelling at me. That's a good reason, by the way. And and because I seemed to be needed. I seemed to be needed. Well, I was, of course, but not in the way that I thought. I was needed because I was a newcomer, and they could all look at me and say, boy, I remember when I was like that, you know. (laughs) And it's been quite a journey. Uh, Besides those things with our kids, which you learned a little bit about, um, 
Uh, it's been tough. Uh, Elsa, Margie is Bill's wife, and she took me to a meeting in Laguna Beach, which is just a few miles up the road from us. And it's in another county, but, you know, that's where she took me, because she knew there wasn't really much um, going on in Oceanside with Al-Anon, a little. But she knew there was a real strong Al-Anon meeting going on in Laguna Beach, the Monday Lagoon me- Laguna meeting. And boy, was she right. And she was nice to do that. She's an AA woman. And she took me there, and she put me in the hands of some other Al-Anons. And those Al- one of those Al-Anons was Elsa C. And uh, at one of my first meetings, Elsa said to the group about something. She says, you know, sometimes sobriety is harder than drunk. And the group all goes, yeah, you know, we do that in Al-Anon once in a while, folks. Uh, we just got to go, God. And, you know, that's the thing. I was working with a newcomer last week, and she, her husband is newly sober. And he's crazy, you know, <laughs> poor guy. I mean, he really is. He's, he's having an awful time. He happens to be a... Well known, so he has to keep a low, po- low profile. I can't let anybody know in the world that this man's got a problem because my God, you know who. And so she's protecting that. Well, I don't have an argument with that. She's got to do what she's got to do. But she's saying, my God, I thought if we could, if he quit drinking, we could take a deep breath and it'd be okay. And she says, we have problems. <laughs> Ooh, tell me. And we were talking about that, and I just, it's so wonderful because it takes me back to myself. And, you know, one of the things I said to her, her name's Nikki, I said, you know what, it's not gonna, you're not gonna feel like it's fair for a while. That's what somebody told me. It's not fair. It, I didn't feel like it was fair when he got a one year cake. Whoopee. Good grief, you know, all this credit just because he didn't take a drink. It's okay. I feel okay telling that to newcomers. It's okay if it doesn't feel fair. It really is. You just don't know it. And I, I would hear myself repeating the very things I got told. And that sometimes sobriety is not all it's supposed to be because I'm so unrealistic. See, I figured if I get the drinking out of the way, then everything's going to be okay. Well, of course it isn't. We had 20 years of disturbance in that household, and I had developed some very destructive ways of dealing with stuff. Uh, making sacrifices that were just stupid, a lot of them, and all just to keep him controlled and to keep that household going the way I thought it should be. And all of it was just designed to run the world my way. That's all it was. And and a whole lot of fear. So many of the decisions I made were based on being so scared as this all developed and unfolded. Soon after I'd been coming to Al-Anon, my mom... Now, we didn't have any booze in the house, because Cliff had quit drinking. Well, there might have been some booze back in the kids' rooms, you know. <laughs> there probably was. Actually, I didn't look much for booze. I looked for funny little pills, because believe me, they had lots of little goodies around. And uh, and I knew it, and I knew a lot of them were, because I had a friend on the police force that told me. I took them down and said, Ron, what's, what are they taking now? You know, I was narking on my own kids. <laughs> Well, I'd lived in that community for so many years, and I knew so many people, and I, you know, I needed to know. But I'd been going to meetings, and uh, my mom had gone all that time without drinking. She was um, a periodic, of course, so that wasn't really unusual. And the day came when she needed to drink, of course. And uh, she brought it up to me in a way that was like very typical of us. She said, "Patty, I'm a." We've been working hard. Let's get ourselves a little bottle of wine and relax. And I need to tell you, I'd found two ways to dealing to deal with my mom's drinking over the many years. One of those was to scold her, and the other was to act like it was okay, not make a deal out of it. And I didn't do either of those two things. I didn't know I wasn't going to. I had just been going to meetings. That's all. And you'd been giving me a message, in spite of myself. And I told her that I um. I couldn't purchase the booze for her. That she uh, she'd had a stroke the last binge she'd gone on, and um, the doctor had warned us that if she drank again like that, she was apt to have another stroke. She might not make it through. And I said that to her. Um, my mom was quite capable of getting her own alcohol. She wasn't uh, helpless. She had the money and she had the way to go ahead and buy herself something to drink and drink. And my mom. Uh, I had released her with love, is what I had done. And we called it that then. We didn't call it detachment much. 
I uh, really had. And I had told her, you're welcome to come to AA with us. And you're certainly go ahead and drink if you want to, but I can't participate in it with you. And she didn't drink. She didn't go to AA. But she took her own life two days later. And my mom was 64 years old. And she was really showing the effects of alcoholism and smoking. Um, and I never for a minute felt responsible. Because, why well, have they come down on And you'd been telling me stuff I didn't think I needed to know. That I didn't cause alcoholism. That I can't control it. And I can't cure it. And somehow, that message had gotten into my heart and my soul. And when she chose that, and she chose it, I knew I wasn't responsible. And part of that was because I did it the way I did it. Because you taught me that. You taught me you can love somebody with this problem, with this struggle. But it isn't necessary to participate and to play the game. What a wonderful gift. Isn't that sad? But we know alcoholism in here. And we can tell, and Cliff and I knew then, for her to imagine living anywhere else in the world, why would she want to do that? She had Everybody loved her. Um, that had changed. Not that everybody loved her, but we weren't having those parties in that way anymore. And I guess she wasn't ready to quit drinking. And there was no other place for her to put that. So she chose to die. Um, I don't want everybody to have to learn a lesson that way, but that's never left me. I've never since then had to go to a place where I honestly thought that I was the cause of somebody else's choices, and I'm not. Boy, I thought so for a lot of years. I thought I brought all these things on in my children, in my husband. So that as we struggled through the years of the program, and it's been tough sometimes, and Cliff, you know, he talks about that sometimes. He's struggled with this anger, and that whole story he tells about this speech coach, that's, by the way, true. That's not a made-up story. <laughs> God, you know, you can just see me on the other end of it, you know, trying to reason with him. <laughs> you all know what I'm talking about. Reason with it. Now, come on, you don't tell me that guy down there could mean all, you know, just carrying on. Just reasoning with him, if you just listen to me. Oh, so, you know, he's had a tough road, and he's stuck with it, and he's still here after 30 years, and he's he's uh, stay close. We're very different people, we've discovered, now that the booze is cleared away. We're different. We It's okay, because we got the program, and we're going to be different, and still keep going, and still keep going for all those reasons that we should keep going and need to. We have different approaches to a lot of things in life. Um, we're very different when it comes to our kids. We're very different when it comes to money. We're very different how we spend, largely, how we spend leisure time. I mean, we have different interests, but that doesn't mean it, we don't have mutual things as well. It's just okay to have all these differences. We don't have to be attached at the hip. You know, it's really okay to do different things and have different interests and go on with life. And uh, and it's it's wonderful. I've got, um, I have a sponsor who lives in Laguna Beach. Her name's Karen A., and you may know her. She speaks. She's got a Swedish accent. She's as down-to-earth and practical as anybody can be. She just doesn't fool around. Simple, and she's darling. And I appreciate her so much. And uh, I happen to be one of those people who has to be close to a sponsor regularly. And I never go more than two weeks without going to Laguna Beach meeting, and I usually go more often than that, because that's a regular for me for a whole lot of years and um, she and I, if I don't get up there on a Monday because I can't get a way to do it, we always uh, get together and talk at least once a week. And I need to do that. I have to stay current because, boy, I can slip back into my old patterns just like that. And I don't I don't want to discourage newcomers, <laughs> but I'm telling you, this is what I'm like. And I know that I can. And I just keep her current all the time. If not together, we visit. I go up, we have breakfast together. And usually Max would join us, but Max isn't well enough now. But uh, those things are absolutely vital for me. Um, and I like to sponsor people. And I like to be reminded. And I like to give Alan on service. Um, and give something to Alan on to keep it going. And that's one of my favorite things to do. When I was early in Al-Anon, I, um, I, I began sponsoring Alateen. Well, you know, 
that's pretty funny when you're new in Al-Anon. You don't know what you're doing anyway, but nobody else was sponsoring him. And why not did that? I was thrown into a situation I'd never heard of before, really. One of the girls was being molested by her stepfather, who was sober. And she was talking about it in an Alateen meeting. And, of course, in Alateen, we, we really guard their confidentiality, naturally. And we, my, my co-sponsor is an AA man who's died now. His name was John Breen. We had the best time, the two of us. We didn't know what we were doing with those kids. But we couldn't seem to manage our own kids. So we, yeah. <laughs> it works, by the way. I uh, got my mind off of those kids. But we didn't know what to do about this girl. And what, of course, happened in that case was that the Alateens themselves found the solution. They talked her into going to her school counselor. Alateens will help themselves if you give them a chance. All we do is put them in where they can. And um, But out of that came an awareness on my part about the dilemma of uh, youngsters who go through this kind of thing. And as a result, I went back to college after I'd been in Al-Anon for a while. And I um, went back to college and back to college and back to college, kind of startled Cliff. I was like in school for five years, more or less, one way or another. But I did that because I wanted to work in that field. I'd been volunteering in that kind of stuff, sort of in the city, but and uh, that's what I began doing about 20 years ago. And I've recently, and and so I had a private practice, and we ran a business, and we were going, God, we had a tiger by the tail. We had the best business going, and I finally got tired. And because of Alan and I've learned that I can retire, and I now I just work about eight hours a week, keep it simple and make a few bucks so I can do some of the important things of life, like buy t- season tickets to the Padre games. And you know. And I've learned from you that it's very important for me to be around the kind of people who bring out the best in me. And that doesn't mean I don't spend time with newcomers and, and people who are negative because they're there and they're in my life. But I need very much to have the balance in life of people who are going forward and who are giving me something too. There's people that drain us to me. There are people who drain me, and there are people who replenish me. And no one person's better than another. It's just who they are and who I am. And I need to be with people who replenish me. And this is where I find them. And some other places, because I keep my a little bit of activity going on in the community. Being able to tap into that, it's a let go of my own sick need to control, to be able to just let the world be. And just take care of certain things that I know I can do because you've given me the courage and the strength. And to walk through fears, to go ahead and do something while I'm scared. By the way, newcomers, that's a lot of it. Do it while scared because it's the right thing to do. And what I believe today is that if I do the right thing, and I know what the right thing is, I know, we know, we know in our hearts what the right thing is. I do the right thing. Being the best Alan I know how, and constantly in touch with a sponsor, that it's going to be right for the people I love. They may not think so sometimes, but I believe it, and I might be scared, but I believe it's right for the people I love. And you've given me that wonderful gift, and I thank you for that.